And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Code Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand with special guests Malcolm Edwards and David Hartwell on the Code Street Podcast! Here we go. Thank you. Uh, we, we have to all wait for, yeah, for yeah, his yeah, introduction to trail off. But anyway, we are here, Malcolm Edwards and David Hartwell and myself are here in San Antonio, where I'm willing to bet it's as warm here as it gets in Perth. In December, uh, it's it's incredibly hot. Well, maybe yeah, a hundred degrees in the street today, and the humidity was rather high. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, in other words, quite a shock to go in and out of the air conditioning, which we had to do way too much. Yes, and hotter than than it ever gets anywhere in England. And, 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 and no island has ever been this hot. No. no. And I have to say, one of the great attractions of going to world conventions for me is to get away from heat. So I can't say that I'm completely sorry that I'm not there. Well, I was talking to somebody who was talking to both both of you guys, Malcolm and David, about about the state of publishing, and they came away thinking it's it's bad on both sides of the pond. It's just as bad in England as it is in the states. And they came so so the two of you managed to absolutely depress this poor young writer into essentially, I think, taking up cab driving. Well, I hope so, because I don't want to encourage young people to go into writing at this point. Uh, There are so many people who have already gone into writing who are desperately in need of publication, uh, and we don't have enough room. Yeah, well, there are certainly more people wanting to be published than there are professional publishers who can publish them. But But I think the opportunities are still there to make a very good career out of out of writing whatever kind of fantastica you care to name but there have always been more writers wanting to be published than there were publishers i mean is there something different now well i think you know people didn't expect to make make a living from it for Ah. a long time yeah i mean when i came into publishing way long ago uh there were approximately five people in the English-speaking science fiction world who were writers who were making what we might politely call a living yes. at it. All the rest of the writers who wrote science fiction in the world had day jobs and yes. knew they were going to keep them. Yes, I mean, that's true. Certainly in England, there were probably two people who made a, a consistent living mm-hmm. when I first came into the science fiction world who were Brian Aldiss and Michael Moorcock. Brian by being very well connected and being, uh, and, and, uh, but, he, but he also reviewed on the side, he was literary editor of a, of a newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. And Michael, Mike Moorcock wrote an awful lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but, and there were other people who, who did nothing but write, uh, but they didn't necessarily make what most of us would recognize as a living from it. Yeah, I mean, Gardner wrote yeah. and did nothing but write uh, when I came into the field, but Gardner made about $2,000 a year. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, in other words, lived on a poverty budget. Yes. Uh, there were a lot of ideals, idealistic young writers who did that at yeah. the time because society would support on a subsistence level, people yes. at, in that way. And you can also do that when you're in your, in your 20s. You can live penuriously in a way that you don't want to do for your entire <laughs> life. Yes, you can live entirely on peanut butter yes. and pizza. Yes. Uh, 
But even, but even, I was going to say, even back in the, the 50s, though, you mean, you know, I, th- I think back to the stories told by Ellison and Silverberg and writers like that, you really had to maintain an almost impractical level of product productivity to have a decent lifestyle out of it, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I have spent fruitful moments in my adult life talking to Phil Class and Ted Sturgeon mm-hmm. and the people who were nearly starving in the late 1930s and early 40s, but writing science fiction. Uh, Those stories about going to the automat in New York and getting free hot water, the tea water, and putting the little catsup packages in it to make tomato soup. And crackers. And and free crackers uh, so that you could survive uh, were true stories. And the Philip K. K. Dick story about living on pet food. Yes, the Philip K. Dick story about Mm. going to the uh, market and buying pet quality meat. Yes. Uh, You know, uh, it it was true. And people did it because of the wonder of science fiction, because they wanted, in fact, more than anything else to write science fiction. Uh, there were other people who did yeah. it for other reasons, but the people we're talking about yeah. wanted that. So the, the sense that you have is younger writers today want more than that. They don't, you think they're less committed to writing science fiction because it's, as you say, wonderful? I'm not sure that in my experience, young writers today think of science fiction as a particularly special thing hmm. to write, as opposed to fantasy or yes. whatever other uh, horror mainstream slipstream. Yes, yeah, well, I think whatever. Ma- I think Malcolm is correct, and I think it is a, a, an acute perception. Younger writers do not think of science fiction as a holy task, no. as opposed to fantasy, as opposed yeah. to horror, mm. as opposed to any other form of literature, yeah. and and. You know what is now published as science fiction, in a lot of cases, uh, would not have been viewed as proper science fiction 40 years ago. Indeed. I was going to say, do you f- both feel that science fiction is still a holy task for you both? Um, well, it's kind of a holy task for me. I mean, I you know I don't really work in the field anymore and haven't done for 20 years, but I but I do try as as the part of my job that I do in this if you, in the in the 10% of time that I have to choose, I devote that to 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 rescuing science fiction books <laughs> from obscurity into lesser obscurity. Yeah, I I, I myself. Uh for better or worse, have devoted my life to science fiction. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm still going out there and looking for science fiction writers and science fiction novels mm-hmm. and uh, science fiction stories to reprint in anthologies yeah. uh, of science fiction. Uh, because I committed myself to that when I was very young and it's made me happy. Yeah. My sense is what the, uh, what the two of you are doing in some ways is complimentary now, but the SF Gateway, which is an enormously valuable thing to have available, even though not everything is available in the United States that so we would like to have available. <laughs> or that uh, I would like to be able to make it. Or that you like to make it available. But it seems to me that that context, which, uh, that context of all the masterpieces of 20th century science fiction and, and minor works that form the context of the conversation, are, they need to be made available to the new writers that David is looking at, some of whom are very sophisticated, I find out, people in their 20s, and some of whom have never heard of things that we would assume you would just start off with. Yeah, I was explaining to uh, several young writers today some things about the works of Henry Kuttner uh, in the 1940s, mm-hmm. 
and what he con contributed to the language of science fiction and the discourse of science fiction, and they were completely unfamiliar with it. Yeah. Well, I think you know, science fiction has always, uh, at its best, operated according to a set of rules that were set down in the 1930s and mm. 1940s and so on and so forth. And now most new young writers coming, you know, having the impulse to write that kind of fiction are not aware, either not aware of those rules or think they're old-fashioned and, and irrelevant. Yeah, uh, there are a certain minority who still yes. adhere to them. Yeah. Uh, those are people I back, try to seek out. Yeah. Uh, and in the publishing and editorial process, I try to deal with the other people as best I can in terms of informing them uh, about the history and development of the rules of the field and why this rule or that rule might make sense to adhere to this book or that book. Well, my, my sense is that, uh, and we've had some younger writers on this podcast, some of whom have an acute understanding, patches of science fiction, they haven't systematically read it, but they may have read here and there, they may have read, or, or fantasy for that matter, they may have read Mervyn Peake, but not Tolkien. There are odd things there. Right. Um, but it seems to me when all of us were and younger, and Jonathan, you may be the youngest one here now. Yeah. Uh, there were, there, oh, certainly so. Yeah. <laughs> but there were, there were certain things that were always available. You didn't have to be a, you did not have to be a serious science fiction reader because for something like 35 or 40 years, Adventures in Time and Space was always available as a modern library book. Everyone starting to read the field could find that book and get kind of a, uh, an introductory course. And um, there are lots of anthologies out there now, but I don't think that until SF Gateway came along that there was an easy entree into uh, this vast body of literature. And I don't know if we can expect that of people anymore. Yeah, well, Tor in its own way uh, and it's a different way, has tried to resurrect books, keep books in print, wow. do anthologies, uh, keep the faith as it were. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I started the SF Masterworks series, I got that, in 1999. The yellow one, say. Yeah. No, yeah. The, the, the payback series. No, the payback I, I had, I had, had an earlier go of Collins in the 1980s. That's what I classic yeah. SF. Right. But the SF Masterworks was born on the day that I discovered that both the Forever War and the Stars My Destination were out of print in the UK. And I thought, well, I can, I can, I can make a series mm -hmm. out of yes. books like this, which are out of print, which I know have, if you like, a canonical quality. And the SF mm -hmm. Masterworks was an, an, an attempt to throw as, as comprehensive a lasso as I could around the SF canon. And that's been quite successful, yeah. But it's a limited number of books, yeah, because when you're publishing a physical series of books, you are limited in the number of books you can publish, the, the number of books that retailers will mm -hmm. stock. You can do X number of books a month and no more. Yeah, once you get into the digital arena, you mm -hmm. can throw out as many as mm -hmm. you, you have the capability of doing. Because on the other hand, you can't reach as you can't no. reach as many people with yeah. the, the book. No, but uh, yeah, and as, as, as I often say, I, I view the SF Gateway more as a kind of bookshop model than a publishing model. So it's 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 the bookshop which has all the SF books you ever dreamed about finding, you know, the very well-known ones by your favourite writers, and also the extremely obscure ones that mm. you could never find. They're all there. And, 
and readers can then make their choices from among them. That that's the dream. Anyway. There's a magic bookshop story by Robert Charles Wilson, and I don't remember the title. Where he finds a bookshop in Toronto, which includes all the novels that Henry Cutner never wrote, and the novels that are Edgar Pangborn couldn't publish. Oh, yeah. And it, that that's kind of the dream you're talking about. Yeah. Because there are always novels we don't really know about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I I very much admire the Ozempic Gateway idea, as I admire the Masterwork series. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, there are. Uh, I think uh, hopes for the future of science fiction as long as there are multiple attempts in multiple areas. I mean, Bain Books is trying to do certain yeah. things. Yeah. Tor-, Tor Books is trying to do certain things. Yes, you think, are trying to do I think it's probably things. easier in the UK to kind of get that, that mm-hmm. lasso around a larger number of books. Probably. Yeah, because there are fewer publishers yeah. trying to do that. In the US, for a number of years, the vintage contemporaries had yeah. a very significant aspect of yes. preserving mm-hmm. classic or canonical science fiction. Uh, they seem to have receded from that in the past few years. Yes. But, uh, and the agents for the Philip K. Dick estate always trying to urge me to move him out of science fiction into, into contemporary yeah. classic literature. Well, it was interesting. Well, the reason for that is, of course, yes. that the escalation of a writer into the canon involves a denial of genre. Yes. Uh, and Philip K. Dick has moved into the canon of American literature by being published in the Library of America, which is Edmund Wilson's idea of a the ideal publishing program to preserve mm. the literary canon. So has the same thing happened to H.P. Lovecraft as a result? This is making people crazy. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Philip K. Dick yeah. made people yeah. crazy too. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Lovecraft in particular, I mean, because Edmund Wilson didn't know anything about Philip K. Dick, but he knew he knew and hated Lovecraft. Yeah, he despised Lovecraft and wrote anti-Lovecraft right. essays of the New Yorker. Right, <laughs> despised Lovecraft, despised Tolkien. Oh yeah, yeah. right, right. The so famous he, line about Lovecraft was that certainly if you're trying to create a sense of horror, the last thing you want to do is to produce an invisible whistling octopus. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, back to squids in space. Squids in space, exactly. (laughs) Nevertheless, the last thing I expected in my adult life when I was younger was to have children the age of, you know, five, six, and seven in the early 2000s that knew the distinction between various Lovecraft characters because they were stuffed animals. The little plush yuggas. <laughs> Jonathan, I'm and wondering about... Ones. I know you've talked, but growing up in Australia, we're talking a little bit about the UK and about America. What was your opportunity to see like the canon of earlier science fiction? Well, in a sense, I think it's probably closer, you know, related to the British experience and the fact that, you know, all the books, you know, the books on our shelves were British editions of books. There was almost nothing from the U.S. And there seemed to be Uh a time lag. So when when I I was growing up in the mid-70s, all of the A.E. Van Vogt, the Doc Smith, all of those sort of 30s, 40s, 50s science fiction titles were in every bookstore around. It was absolutely normal Mm -hmm. to to come come across uh, them. There was a huge revival of Doc Smith in the UK in paperback in the 1970s, bizarrely. Yeah. And in the US. Yeah. But that, that, that went hand in hand with the Chris Foss covers. Yes. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Okay. And were they like Panther editions or something like that, I think? Yeah. They, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah they, in, the, in the US, they were uh, less impressive pyramid editions. Yeah. yeah. 
and then they were rolled along with it. You know, there's lots and lots of Ave and Vogt in print at the time. But yeah, you know, I wonder if design had something. Yeah, I mean, we had all those Ace reprints of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs with, I guess, Roy Crinkle covers. Uh, mm-hmm. that, and it, the design was part of the sales. I mean, it, uh, it was very important. Well, you know, yeah. basically, you know, uh, there was there have been ages and successive ages of repackaging. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, and you re- repackage and reposition books yeah. for each era. And every now and again, a particular artist or a particular style of art hits mm-hmm. a new sweet spot in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then everybody rushes to imitate it. And that mm-hmm. happened with Chris Foss in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Yes. It happened in fantasy in Britain with Jeff Taylor in the mm-hmm. late 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened... Uh, I'm not sure sure who the artist is, but it's happened in the last five years with covers with people in people wearing cloaks and hoods. In the uh, late 70s and early 80s, fantasy became Daryl Sweetland. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, under the uh, pressure of Del Rey packaging, yeah. and uh, there was uh, a successive wave in the mid 80s yeah. of uh, kind of. Post pre-Raphaelite. Yes, I mean, I mean, this is an area where actually the, the UK and the USA diverge quite, quite sharp. I think so. Yeah, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. Uh, With fantasy, the British covers have been much more landscape-based, and the absolutely. US ones much more character-based. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. There, uh, in uh, up until the late seventies, one of the things that happened in both markets was that British companies would sometimes buy American reprint art yes. and use it, yeah. and American companies would buy British reprint art and use it. I know I did that. Yeah, But not necessarily American. for the same books. Oh, no. Not, you know, rarely for no. the same mm. books. Yeah. Uh, but the packaging, as we all know, is, is sufficiently generic so yeah. that uh, you can often trans- transform. And there, there was a period where the Christmas the Chris Foss spaceship cover mm. would sell any book. I always remember the edition of 334, Tom Dish's 334, with the mm. Chris Foss spaceship on the what? cover. <laughs> <laughs> That's really yeah. pretty astonishing. Yes. Uh... But, but in a sense, you could make an argument, this is not a very persuasive one, I realize, that it was emblematic of a genre, not of the content of the book in itself. Yeah. In a way, yeah. that's like having the double-day yeah. spaceship yes. on, the, on the spine yeah, of a book. Yeah, yeah. it was a signifier. Right, exactly. What the, right. What, for, what the kind yeah. of stuff that was in within, mm. was, yes. within the those The kind covers. of stuff was science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. And put a spaceship on the cover, it means the kind of stuff is science yeah. fiction. It may not take place in yeah. space, but yeah. the kind of stuff is And it turns fiction. out that in the United States, and I was talking to Ellen Clages about this, it's not just the double-day logos, but public libraries would have little spaceship logos that they would paint on the science on the spine. Yeah. On the spine. Yeah. So you could tell immediately what it was. Of course, whether or not there was a spaceship in the text had no relevance yeah. whatsoever. Right. That wasn't necessarily confined to science fiction because I had a little other yeah, a gun for mysteries. A, a gun for mysteries, yeah, probably a horse's head Western, for westerns yeah. or something along those lines. Um, that was but, unexpected. No, one of the things that um, uh, strikes me about, well, you and you mentioned this, Malcolm, earlier, that Fantasy, the rise of fantasy in that proportion of the market, and it, it seems almost like a rearguard action to introduce science fiction classics to an audience which seems more and more, even former science fiction readers, shifting yeah. into fantasy. Yeah, well, I think that, that that is the case. I mean, you know, again, I, I can only talk from the British perspective, mm-hmm. but I think it's similar that what happened in the 1970s 
we didn't realize at the time how how much it was going to change the whole landscape mm. when the big fancy novel arrived with Terry Brooks and Stephen Donaldson mm. in 76, 77. And actually, you know, the Darwinian for, forces of the market uh, took hold. And it turned out that people liked big fancy novels in mm. larger numbers than they liked small, small science fiction novels. So, so those books gradually took over the, the space available for what's still labeled science fiction in bookshops that actually now features very few books that we would recognize as classic science fiction. And that's the kind of context in which The Stars of My Destination and the, the Forever War went out of print. Mm. So I could start that list. And the great advantage I had was at that point in my career, the only person I had to convince to do those books was, in fact, myself. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> yeah, part of the difficulty I have communicating with, uh, you know, the younger writing community right now yeah. is convincing that, quote, science fiction still sells. Yes. That it is a viable thing to do to write a science fiction novel. Because, of course, my, my daily experience tells me that science fiction sales haven't gone down, yes. particularly. Fantasy sales have gone up, but not across the board. Mm -hmm. you know, yes. the, that was my the average science fiction novel sells just the way the average science fiction is always sold. I, mean, I, I find it's become a bit more polarized. The science fiction that still, still sells pretty well in the UK is broadly what's now known as space opera, not, not pejoratively. Right. No, I understand. But, but people like Ian M. Banks or Alistair Redwood, right. they sell okay. in, in decent bestseller quantities, particularly okay. in hardcover. But that, and that's the that's the kind of area that the traditional science fiction yeah, span uh, that right. pe people still seem to like to read in quantity. Yeah. Paul Macaulay included in that. Uh, <laughs> Well, but I, but I, but I think, we hope the good writers are in yeah. Well, that's the thing, because, see, my sense back in the 70s and 80s was I could see the rise of fantasy, and I, I certainly liked Tolkien, and I certainly liked some fantasy, and I bought all the adult Valentine classic uh, fantasy series. Um, but the, my sense was this isn't a threat to anybody, because science fiction is still there. But then when you start talking about shelf space in bookshops, yeah. it does become a problem. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the newer writers on the Golan's list who sell the most copies. Our writers like Charlene Harris and Brandon Sanson mm -hmm. and Patrick Rothfuss, who all write species. I mean, you could argue that Charlene Harris is a, started off at least as a science fiction series with vampires in it. Um, but but, but Sanson and Brandon and, and Pat write pure mm -hmm. fantasy, very big books as well. And, and, yeah. you know, and you know, those are the areas of the market which people seem to like the most. Yeah. yeah, as witnessed the, the success of George Martin. Mm. Yeah, uh, my sense is that George wasn't, and he made, he certainly knew his way around markets, yeah. he knew his way around Hollywood and that sort of thing. But my sense is that he set out to write a really solid on the ground fantasy and is still a little bit stunned at the degree of success oh, yeah. he's had. Oh, yeah. he wanted to have a successful series. Yeah, yes. right. Uh, he wanted to uh, know, in fact, uh, he went, had a series of meetings with editors and others, myself included, uh, as to whether he should write a, a big ambitious space opera or a big ambitious fantasy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I myself yeah. said, well, you know, if I had my personal choice, I'd say space opera, you're really good at yeah. it. 
And yes, this was the Battlestar Galactica era. Of, mm -hmm. of, you know. yeah. And he took that into consideration, but talked to other people and said, well, big fantasy. Yes, yeah, so I said to him, you could do big fantasy better than anybody else if you set your mind to yeah. it. Because he has yeah. that narrative gift. And he set out to, to write the trilogy, yeah. which mm -hmm. it was going to be. Right. Yes, yes. But, but, uh, and I, to my dismay, I was the underbidder yeah. uh, mm. in the U.S. Uh, to my dismay, I was the winner, and then I changed jobs. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're going back to science fiction. Yeah. The other thing I, I was going to say is that you, we, I always say to the, the, the Golan's editors, if you really, really like a book, you have to publish it, whether, it's gonna, whether, whether you feel it's going to sell or not. Because you never exactly know what's going to sell, mm -hmm. and if you, you know, if you like the books you publish, at the end of the day, the worst you've done is publish publish an unsuccessful good book. That's true. Have either um, of you? Okay. Now, have either of you had the experience of of doing exactly that, picking out a book that you really believe in, and you think this is going to tank, but I love it so much, and then it doesn't tank. It does really well. I actually <laughs> don't buy books that I simply believe are going to fail. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe mean, they but, have a chance. Of but success. having a chance, I mean, they they have a lesser chance than 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 uh, you know, books in different areas of the market. Yeah. Look, so, when when one buys a book, mm -hmm. one buys a book in the category of we know this is going to succeed because the author's last book succeeded. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we know within a certain within certain parameters that if we devote this much effort to it and it's mm -hmm. this kind of book, it will work. Yes. And then there's this whole category of books. Where, we don't know whether this will work. We hope it will work. We think it will work. This is the way it yes. might work. Mm, yes. And we like it. And we like it. Our taste has proved uh, uh, similar enough to the market's taste to, to feel mm. that it's not going to be rejected out of hand. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we published the, Adam Roberts, so I'm sure you, uh -huh. you know. Right. Now, you know, Adam, Adam is seems to me to exemplify in a way what's changed in science fiction because what he writes is every book is different from every other mm -hmm. there are no series some of the books are more successful than others some i like better than others but he has the kind of career that science fiction writers used to have when mm -hmm. every book was different from the book before and from the book afterwards and he's now seen as a bit of a, a, an eccentric outlier in the field mm -hmm. But part of that, I suspect, is because he's a scholar of the field. He knows the history of the yeah. field very well. He will yeah. make allusions and... Well, it's like Barrington Bailey. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's a really yeah. talented writer who kept doing all sorts of things, you know. And the yeah. opening uh, of, of, of Jack Glass is, is fairly deliberately yeah. the Star's My Destination sort of redux. Yeah, no, no he, he, he's very aware of his genre yeah. history. He's written a He's written a good history of science fiction, yeah. Yeah. But, but the point is... He's never approached us with an idea for a sequel mm. or for an idea for a series. Right. Because that's broadly not what he's interested in doing. And long may he continue. Mm. But, he but he does have a proper academic job as well. <laughs> yes, good for him. Yeah. Uh -huh. So he can afford to write what he wants to write. I, which is the yeah. field that Malcolm yes. and I grew up in. Uh -huh. you know, the writers could afford yeah. to write what they wanted to write. And therefore, you know, their, their, their imaginations are free by not having to think about bringing yet mm -hmm. another variation out of broadly the same subject matter. Right. Yeah. But, it, but it's publishing in a situation where it can still support a writer who wants to write what he, wants to, he or she wants to write. 
You mean support completely in terms no, of... No, no, I mean, not necessarily content. completely, but make it a viable option from a publisher's perspective to, to have a writer like that. Because, I mean, there are two different considerations here. There's what a writer wants to take away both uh, artistically and commercially from a career, and it's what a publisher needs. And, you know, obviously a publisher needs a writer to be viable enough in a career to be able to persist with. Obviously, Adam has been viable enough to, for Golans to persist with but is this a, a model that can continue or there needs to be some kind of change to allow it to, to, to flourish mm -hmm. let me say that uh, this is a, a moment in the history of publishing when this is a real concern to me I don't know whether this situation will persist five years from now or ten years from yeah. now there's enough change happening right now that I worry about that but at this moment, it is still a viable thing to do. Yes. I mean, we obviously don't set out to publish books which we know are going to lose money. No. Uh, but, mm. I, but I think the, the, the overall approach is, is the list has to make money. Uh, yes. And it does make money. And within, within that, you can experiment a bit and publish books which are you know, not so obviously commercial successes and out of those will come some left field successes of the kind mm. you talked about earlier yes and and yeah as i said yeah if you if you concentrate on making every book you publish you know, a book well either a book that's a guaranteed commercial success or a book that you like you have a list that you're very pleased to publish mm within which some books will be far more successful than others. It is my, it is my experience that happy editors are better yeah. employees than unhappy <laughs> editors. Yeah. Also, also, I think <laughs> you know, the, 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 the non-direct benefit of publishing more kind of different writers or, or more sort of uh, you know, writers at, at the edges of, of the genre mm is that they tend to be the writers that other writers admire and therefore by publishing them you attract other writers to your lists. That's an interesting thought because the, the idea of the list overall balancing things out, it, it seems to me you have to have a fair amount of respect in the industry to get that privilege because otherwise you get the pure business model where every book is separate, every profit and loss statement is separate. I mean I'm sure David about this is not roughly parallel, but in a, in a broad sense, you're publishing a very long series of novels by Gene Wolfe. More or less at the same time, you're publishing a very long series of novels by Robert Jordan. Yes. And I'm yeah. pretty sure the Gene Wolfe books, title by title, didn't sell anything like the John Robert Jordan did. This is true. On yeah. the other hand, certain of Gene Wolfe books made us significant amounts of money. Yeah. Not as significant as the Robert Jordan amount, but mm. nevertheless, much more than the average yeah. book we publish. Some of the Gene Wolfe books did not make money, but the other books and the average was high enough uh -huh. so that we could be enthusiastic about publishing each book. Yeah, and I think if you try and, as a publisher, try and approach constructing a list from the point of view that every book has to make money, you then get a very dull list that probably doesn't make as much money as you want it to mm. and some people do approach it that way these right? are the, yeah and to my mind it's not not an effective <coughs> way to approach publishing in the row but these are the nightmare stories we hear from certain 
from writer, well, from writers and editors who have, have had to deal with certain European corporations. Can I put it that way? <laughs> um, essentially, you have you have executives who don't have any interest in books except as a units of sale. Yeah. Uh, and and is there a danger that the publishing industry is moving inexorably in that direction? There's a danger that it has moved in yeah. that direction too far. Uh -huh. I mean, I think what's happening at the moment, certainly in the UK, is that the mix between physical and digital is tending tend, tend to at least sustain profitability. Mm. So if there's a long-term downward trend, that's been masked in the P&L by, mm. by, uh, by the actual profitability of what we're publishing. Um, you know, how that's going to be in five years' time, as, as David suggested, is pretty unclear to me. And I think, you know, to anybody who thinks about it, I think would have to admit it's pretty unclear. Yeah. Uh, there is, uh, to reverse the polarities of the discussion for the moment, uh, there is every indication that this is a good year. Really? This is not a bad year. Yeah. This is a good year. Yes. I, mean, I would have to say that I'm not really up to date with what's happening in science fiction. Because other, yeah, you're other will be published. But no, but I mean, yeah, yeah, but, in terms but, of publishing, this yeah, is but, a good uh, year. Yes, yeah, so or publishers on the whole yeah. have stopped complaining. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so it's probably the result of three good years because it takes them two years to stop. I'm going to say, publisher stop complaining sounds yeah. really ominous. Yes. It sounds like, okay, the wolves aren't howling now, but that yes. could be yes. that they're at the gate. Well, I, you know, uh, this is a kind of general thing I've experienced in publishing over decades. As it happens, uh, Tor, the company I work for, has had a stroke of enormous good luck this mm. year. Uh, out of the blue, there has become a major motion picture made to be released this fall out of Ender's Game. Uh -huh. And in an even less predictable stroke of luck, we released four editions of Ender's Game, re-released last January. And since then, at least two of those editions have been on the New York Times bestseller list every week every of the week, year. Yeah. Which means we have made unpredictable and surprising amount of money this year, yeah. completely aside from the rest of our publishing. Is, is there a reason for that, given that nobody's actually seen the film yet? Ender's Game has been the most profitable book in our backlist since it was published. It just happens that even a little extra publicity yeah. at the beginning of the year catapulted it into the area of a book that a lot of people out there, outside the genre, wanted to read this year. And didn't and it get up a few years ago as well as oh, positioned as a YA novel? There has been bumps with every edition released. It's been a liable, big seller for us for decades. But this year, it has suddenly escalated way beyond our plans mm. and expectations, yeah. which means we're having a good year. And we don't know what will happen once the movie is released. <laughs> well, anything could yeah, happen. Yeah. The just hope is that the movie is an enormous success yeah. and that we sell hundreds of millions more copies. <laughs> because it will 
make life so much easier for the next half decade. <laughs> but who knows? And, and we have discovered in the last year or so our biggest selling backlist ebook, genre ebook, by a long way is Dune. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't selling that well on the, in, on the physical back list, but right. as an ebook, it is mm. really, yeah. I, this is the kind of thing that we discover yes. about electronic yeah. publishing yeah. to our surprise. Well, this is the question I, I think maybe may have a hopeful answer if, if you're having this experience. Is the ebook going to save the back list? Well, I certainly hope so. Otherwise, I'm I'm speaking now as a reader and as a kid who is yeah. a reader. But it seemed yeah. to me that when I was a kid, every couple of years there'd be a new paperback edition of a Heinlein novel or a Sturgeon novel or Asimov. Yeah. Maybe not every couple of years, but yeah. by and large, between the bookshops and the used bookshops, pretty much the canon was always there yeah. somewhere. It was not, well, not hard to find. A, a part of the canon. A part of the canon. Because there were also. I spoke of Henry Cutner earlier. Henry Cutner is a good writer, an yeah. important writer, and an influential mm -hmm. writer. But Henry Cutner was not always in print. No, but mm -hmm. also his his best work work was arguably short, short stories, stories. Yeah. 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 Right. which it always, right. always becomes a bit of a disadvantage in the marketplace. But you see, with one but or two the, exceptions. The, up through this, the sixties, short fiction still yeah. sold. Yeah. But still, Henry Cutner mm. was not always in print. Yeah. So it's a kind of rosy nostalgia to say that everything, you know, in the canon oh, yeah. was there. A lot of things were. Highline was yeah. there. And keep in mind, Clark I'm including used, used bookshops yeah. as well as new bookshops, yeah. which there used to be a lot more. Of course, there used to be a lot. Well, now, the internet for used books, but yeah. still. Well, yeah. Yeah. When I became a keen SF reader and admirer of SF paperbacks in the mid 60s, most of the stuff was there. Or came back into print in the next few mm -hmm. years. Excuse me. There are a few books which you had to hunt down uh, for one reason or another, mm -hmm. but most of it was there. But the other fact within that is that most, even the old stuff, was quite recent. Yeah, when I, when 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 Pyramid reissued E. Smith in the mid mid sixties, mm -hmm. the Lensman series was what well, somewhere between twenty and thirty years old. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, when I when I read uh, *A Princess of Mars* in in the early sixties, you know that book was about fifty years old, which is about the same age now uh, uh, as *Childhood's End*. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. no, that's sixty. That's years. Sixty years old. No, yeah. *The Man <laughs> in the High Castle* like is it. about the same age mm -hmm. as, as *Princess of Mars* was when I first read it. So, mm -hmm. th so there is a much wider span of old stuff. That's exactly that. the point I wanted to make, yeah, that there is a sense that, uh, again, those of us who are older than Jonathan, uh, <laughs> think, okay, we had to catch up yeah, with two or three yeah. or four decades. Yeah. And the, the entire history of science fiction from when I was a child is now less than half of the modern history of science fiction. Yeah. Um, the Neuromancer is, what, almost 30 years 30 old? 30 years old next year, yeah. yeah. So, Jonathan, what are your senses of the ancient the ancient canon things that because you grew up you grew up in the neuromancer generation well i think i okay i think it's wrong to say that, that that i grew up in the neuromancer generation because really i was reading and taking part of the you know the work that had come out in the 60s and 70s very intensely uh, through you know sort of the 70s and 80s and yes i mean i guess neuromancer stands as the first great transformative work of science fiction that I really remember being published mm -hmm. in my lifetime when I was aware of the science fiction field as a field. 
as an active reader. Yeah, yeah. Uh, up until words, that came out and while you were already scientist. Absolutely. I just encountered uh, my first specialist SF bookstore. Uh, Large-scale, whole-scale importing of U.S. editions of books had just started uh, locally. And, in fact, weirdly enough, in fact, Neuromancer was unavailable in the uh, U.S. US edition at that point for a brief period of time. So they were importing the Golan's hardcovers of Neuromancer, which is how I read the book. Even though mm-hmm. I had the ice, the other. I hope you kept it. Yes, it's worth a yes. lot of money yes. now. Yes, that was that was because that was our market. The U.S. edition <laughs> couldn't legally be, be sold in Australia. That's right. So you, that's yeah. right. Oh, excellent. Yeah. That's right. Yes, sadly I didn't keep my copy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, well, that was that was my sense. Go ahead. Finish. That was, I was just like, happily I did well, keep my copy, but uh, it yeah. did mean that. Uh, there's a strange sort of dichotomy in my read or a break, breaking point in my reading though where. At the late 70s through the early 80s, suddenly I've stopped catching up. I've skipped over and now I'm reading the mid-80s onwards and I still have to sort of go back and get that late new wave period when mm. uh, there's a lot of stuff. When I guess both of you were very, very active editing and publishing novels at, at the sort of the beginning to mid part of your early careers. Yeah, I mean, you know, Malcolm and I were, uh, you know... Uh, mostly polite competitors yes. um, <laughs> between the late uh, 70s and uh, 1984, 1985. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, we were certainly aware of being competitors and uh, were uh, both trying to rule the world. You know? mean, yeah, from a different standpoint. I mean, yeah. Yeah, certainly American publishers tried to buy world rights when they could and yeah. some tried more actively than others to sell their, sell their own editions in the UK mm. yeah. um, but you know, I could always I could always buy a wide variety of rights from, from a wide variety of publishers and agents right mm. with certain things being excluded because of mm. you know, corporate uh, right uh, rights uh, issues there's also always been odd sort of differences between the UK and the US markets, hasn't there? I mean, writers who for some reason seem to do well in the UK but never succeed in the US and vice versa. Well, yeah, Mark yeah. Geston. We yeah. talked about this yeah. back in the yeah. 70s. Uh, Mark Geston was not a blip on the radar in the US. And I had asked Malcolm in the mid late 70s what the British had been reading uh, of American science fiction. He mentioned... And he, he and Malcolm. I remember Malcolm mentioned to me Mark Gaston. Yeah. Uh, and I said, "Who?" <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was well yeah. right. <laughs> one, one of the first authors I signed up for the Gateway. Right. And now, now yeah. a lawyer somewhere in in the Midwest. Right. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, it's, but it even continues today. I mean, uh, Paul McCauley has been intermittently published in the U.S. Adam Roberts isn't published in the U.S. Gwyneth Jones isn't published in the U.S. You know, a number of people who you'd consider to be major players artistically, at least in the field, uh, just have no profile. Even look, even Ian Banks. Bear, I mean, uh, even I, Banks never did that. I, well, I was going to say Banks uh, was badly published in the U.S. I was. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time time attempting to publish Banks in the U.S. and was unable to get any headway at all. Uh, but I would think um, the, uh, I could not get a submission. Hmm. But there was always quite a bit of British SF that didn't translate. 
you know, people like yeah. you know, DG Compton, well, he had a couple of specials. A couple, yeah. Well, I, I tried to, I in yeah. fact tried to timescape revive DG yeah. Compton in the US yeah. and failed. Okay. Yeah. Pete Roberts. Pete Priest. Yeah. Huh. I mean, well, they're, they're a special uh, factor for some of these people, <laughs> as we know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am the famous failure yeah. to publish Keith yeah. Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> Although most, I think almost every American academic now recognizes Bond as, as one yeah. of the masterpieces of the field. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But again, at the, time, but at the time when it was appearing in the United States, and it was a nice special, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. It, it just didn't um, seem to be that sort of thing. I mean, because uh, I, I was about Asian, I was thinking, is that really uh, that much different from um, some of the other A specials that, at the time, didn't make much impact, but the authors later did? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one of the ones I believe, which everybody thought was going to be a read forever, was Alexei Panshin's Rite of Passage. Yes, and yes. that was that was a book that seemed as if it was going to be a major piece of the canon for decades. Uh -huh. Yes, and but, but the kind of follow-up was never there, was yeah. it? Yeah, because he wrote that that the Anthony Villiers those three yeah. books, and, and uh, that was it. And, mm -hmm. Yes, and a rather eccentric history of yeah. science fiction in the forties. Oh, we're not supposed to. Say. <laughs> Snips. We were we were we were talking about before. <laughs> yes. What part do we have yes. to cut out? We haven't maligned anybody. No, yet. no, you're all fine. <laughs> no, I, I am curious actually to ask both of you since you've both been editing for so okay. long. Is there a, <laughs> is there a particular book you look back over your careers and are particularly happy and proud of having had the chance to publish and be involved with editing? Publish the Shadow of the Torturer. Mm -hmm. I actually yeah. had to go far out of my way to publish that book. I bought it at Berkeley just before I resigned from the company. Uh -huh. Under contract to Berkeley, and I was at that point the editor of Robert Heinlein, Frank Herbert, Paul Anderson, and Philip Jose Farmer, who had all been on the bestseller list in the last year. And when I resigned, they said, "Okay, David, you can take one author with you, except not Frank Herbert. Yes, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but not more than one, or we'll fight you." They said, who do you want to take? And I knew when people's contracts expired. And I said, I want to take Gene Wolfe. And they said, they said who, who is that? <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's, a, it's an author I've just bought who has had a rocky commercial career and has not had a commercial success with his last two novels. But I think his new book is really fine and will work. And they smiled and said, Please take yes. Gene Wolfe. Yes. And I did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I did. Actually, I was going to mention Gene Wolfe even from the days before I got a full time job in publishing. Uh -huh. I, sure. I persuaded Golan to publish The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Uh, yes. By the then pretty well unknown Gene Wolfe. You know, it says something about personal taste, but uh, it also, uh, when I got to Pocket Books, my first list included The Shadow of the Torturer. Mm -hmm. And Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek novel, and The Vampire Tapestry, and Timescape. Hmm. And of those books, The Shadow of the Torturer sold best. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yes. Very successful. Yeah. Uh, but The Shadow of the Torturer yeah. sold best. I suspect The Shadow of the Torturer is still selling better than the other books on it, if they're even in print. Oh, not Timescape. Timescape is still selling. Oh, Timescape is good. Yes. Yeah, Timescape has yeah. never been out of print. Right. 
Uh, Jonathan, you started to ask something. No, I was just going to say to David, I, I assume the, the great myth then about Gene Wolfe is that his stuff just doesn't sell. Uh, well, whoever says that is an yeah. idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or, or, or subject to some kind of special disability, because yeah. uh, anybody who wishes to and can check sales figures yeah. uh, knows that Gene Wolfe sometimes does sell. Yeah. Not consistently book by book, because he writes mm. very different books, one from another. But when he writes a successful book, it is very, yeah. very yeah. commercially successful. Mm. And this has been true for th 35 years now. Well, in a way, it's especially in the last, since the whole Long Sun series was done, he's just yeah. been writing whatever he wants. And I think it's amazing. I mean, I'm yeah, well, very fond yeah. of home fires. Well, he had a particular success with The Wizard Knight, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, which sold disproportionately well <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's, it's always it's, yeah. it has to be gratifying to get um, early on in in their careers an author who I think is just pretty much universally acknowledged as one of the great science fiction fantasy writers ever and to to be able to support them and to support them in a way that that enables them to find an audience because one of the things that I mean, we had Gene on the podcast one of the things that always fascinated me about Gene Wolfe's readership is that there's a certain component of old-fashioned Heinlein fans. They're not metafiction fans. Mm -hmm. They're not unreliable narrator fans. They're not, they're, they're, they're not literary types like, like right. me. They're people who think, this is cool science fiction, and yeah. this is cool fantasy, and it works at that level. Yeah, I mean, you know, when Gene is really on his, you know, uh, feed, he's uh, has very broad appeal. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, we haven't continued to publish him yes. all these years <laughs> to lose money. <laughs> now, I, I admit, I, I'll tell an anecdote. I, I had lunch with Judy Lynn Del Rey the year after we published The Shadow of the Torturer. Uh -huh. uh, Judy and I got along fairly well, although we disagreed on almost everything. Uh, and she said, well, what's selling? And I said, Shadow of the Torturer, she said. Oh, David, you're lying. And I said, Judy, I'm not lying. It actually happens to be my best-selling book right now in mass market. Uh, and she said, that can't be the case. No one likes that book. <laughs> and I said, Judy, Ron Bush, my boss, used to be your boss and is your uh -huh. friend. I am sure that if you wanted to actually verify this he would allow me to show you you know the sales figures on this uh -huh. one book she said I don't want to know the sales figures I already know it doesn't sell <laughs> and I said okay and yeah. we changed the subject uh -huh. <laughs> but that's the Gene Wolfe doesn't sell attitude yeah. Yeah. and he's certainly never been told that apparently he's very cheerful about and he still seems to think of himself as a working writer who gets money back for every book, and he doesn't really pay a lot of attention to anything beyond getting his checks. Uh, he reads his royalty statements. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. Carefully, but they're all. Yeah, he seems satisfied okay. with them. They're, they're okay. okay. Yeah. But yeah. The, the, the books of his that seem to sell best are the ones that most closely resemble fantasy, whether they actually are or not. Right. Um, this is true. And when we launched our Fancy Masterworks series to go mm. alongside the SF one, I decided to lead off with Gene Wolfe. 
mm-hmm. even though I knew it was really sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, when I yeah. originally published The Shadow of the Torture, I called it Science Fantasy. Yes. And he called me up and said, David, you're calling this book Science Fantasy. Why are you doing this? Do you think it is fantasy? And I said, yes. no, I think it is science fiction. But I think because of the prose style, it will appeal to the fantasy audience as well. So I am calling yeah. it science fantasy as a marketing technique. And he said, fine, do yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's perfectly possible to read those books without even understanding the level on which it's science fiction. Right. This yes. is a point at which we've talked about any number of books, including novels like Peace. Is that there? And I've talked to readers like this, and Gene knows readers like this who have right. enjoyed the novel perfectly yeah. well without realizing that two inches below the surface, it's in a completely different yeah. novel than yeah. what they thought they were reading. Right. Uh, there are readers who do not recognize, understand, or process subtext. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those readers have a different reading experience than I do. But I've never, I, I, you may agree with me on this, I, I don't. Oh, anybody who has mastered subtext as an artistic form as well as Gene has. Um, it's it's um, because you can, as I say, the surface of the narrative yeah. looks seamless, uh, but it's not. Mr. Delaney is pretty good. Okay. Mr. Delaney is yeah. pretty good. Mr. Crowley is pretty good. Yeah. Some of Tom so Dish did that. Mr. Dish is pretty good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. this, this is not unique. But it is certainly true mm-hmm. that Gene does it extremely well. Yes. So, Malcolm, you said to go back to Jonathan's question, somebody, is, was Gene going to be your answer on that as well? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I was trying to think what I should say about that. And, yeah, obviously the experience of an editor buying a book from the States is different. Because well, that's you true. don't have the input as an editor. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to think of the books that I wanted to to uh, highlight that I, I I had both published and edited, mm-hmm. and I come back to a, you know a few first novels, which I think you mm-hmm. know publishing a first novel which launches a career is probably the most satisfying thing any editor ever does. Imagine. And I'm thinking of people like uh, Paul McCauley, Stephen Baxter, Nicola Griffith. Oh. I mean, Nicola, I actually persuaded to write a novel by writing to her and asking her, her if she was writing one, and she wasn't, but she didn't want to tell me that. So she wrote back and said, of course, she was halfway through it. <laughs> that was Ammonite. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Because I read her short stories mm-hmm. and had, had actually turned down in my pre... Because I was by then a graft, and I turned down on Accolance, a vast novel which she submitted, mm-hmm. which I wrote back to her and said, I can't tell you how to cut this by by a third, but if you if you if you do cut it by a third, it'll be a much better novel. And if you want to do that, I'll look at it favorably again. Mm-hmm. And she oh, she got in a fury with me, <laughs> put the book in the in the bottom drawer, and never looked at it again, as far as I know. But, right. Yeah. And then well, she started publishing one or two short stories. I think, and I thought, I'm sure that's the woman whose novel I turned down. <laughs> so I wrote. Yeah. And, then, and then, you know, that kind of thing's always satisfying. Yeah, well, you remember that there was a memorable trip that Charlie Brown and I took to London in the early 80s uh, for the yeah. British uh, 
uh, Eurocon, Brighton. Yes. <laughs> ah, yes. I pass remember, over. Remember, remember the oh, I, yes, right. Uh, however, yeah. what is uh, relevant to this piece of the discussion is that I walked into Maxim Jakubowski's store and said, Maxim, what's new that's good? And he said, well, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to just publish this cat fantasy called Divine Endurance, and I take a look uh -huh. at that. I bought a copy, took it back to my hotel room, and, and started reading it while Charlie was reading something else we were sharing around. Uh -huh. And I read like three chapters and stopped and said, Charlie, I've just discovered a fucking brilliant science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is being masquerading. Good God. And I read a bit more and I called up the editor the next morning and said, This is a science fiction novel. He said, Well, science fiction fantasy. And I said, This is a science fiction novel. I like it very much. I'm going to make an offer as soon as I get back to the U.S. Where does the author live? And he said, Brighton. Right. And I said, Ah, excellent. Yes. <laughs> excellent. Luck with that. I said, yes. would you put me in contact? <laughs> and I called up Gwyneth, and I made a dinner date. And Gwyneth, very pregnant with Gabriel, and her husband came, and I took her to dinner. And I said, it's a science fiction novel. She said, yeah, it is. I said, you think you write science fiction? She said, well, maybe. I said, well, you read science fiction? She said, yes. I said, who do you read? She said, Joanna Russ and the rest of the Cable Wynn and, you know, Susie Charnas. I said, yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I said, I like it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to buy it in the U.S. And I went back to the U.S. And I talked to Tom Doherty. He allowed me to buy it for tour. And I went to a sales conference. You will appreciate this story. And we got a Wayne Barlow to draw picture of a noble-looking cat for the cover. Oh, I yes. remember that, yes. And uh, Patrick had just... I mean, he was in the show's comes too. Uh, and I went in and presented the book, and I said, this is a literate, intelligent science fiction novel about an immortal android cat who is not at all cute or amusing. It has a cat on the cover. Sell the cat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they yes. applauded. <laughs> and they did. It was yes. successful. Yeah. Uh, and that was the same year that Neuromancer came out. Yeah. And mm -hmm. although it was a successful book, I could not get anybody to pay serious attention to it in the U.S. because they, their heads were all turned and focused in one direction. Uh -huh. William Gibson. Is that frustrating when a really high-profile book, more or less, just completely overshadows another good book? I, yes, it yeah. is, and it happens. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. Uh, yes. I mean, there's no necessary correlation between the books you like best as an editor and the books that are the most successful mm -hmm. for the list you publish. Right. Yeah. Or, but in yeah. the wider field, yeah, it's like you know everyone's head turns in one direction at a time, yeah. and no matter how good your book. Are, yeah, they're not looking at them right then. Yeah, so uh, you know, yeah. everybody, I, everybody turns and looks at China Meadows. Yes, everybody mm -hmm. turns and looks at somebody else then. Uh, yeah, 
Paolo last week. Oh, Paolo. Yeah, yeah, whoever. Game. Uh, game. Yeah. It's not that I, I mean, no criticism of the people they turn and look at. They're mm-hmm. good, but yeah, they deserve the attention. Yeah, they deserve the attention, but they take all the oxygen out of the atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> well, it kind of depends what else is around. Because yeah, I was looking up quite recently some mm-hmm. you know, books that I published in, in August uh, eight, 1984, because mm-hmm. it was the 30th anniversary last year. And within within the same month, the same four week period, I published Mythago Wood by Rob Holstall, Neuromancer by William Gibson, and Empire of the Sun by J.G. Ballard. Which Ooh. is a pretty good trio. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, two of which I edited as well, but Neuromancer. Neuro, Neuro yeah. I, I, I got into correspondence with, with Bill Gibson because we were both fans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I suffered with him through the writing of it. Well, I mean, you know, this is this is a, a secret power that yes. certain good editors have. They're also fans. Yes. <laughs> yeah, also being fans, but isn't there a certain amount of luck that when you had that that particular Ballard novel, there's a mainstream yes. bestseller hit, yeah. uh, and you don't have to just sell it to science fiction? Oh, yes. Well, they, it was clear to anybody who read it that, that if Ballard was ever going to have a commercial breakthrough, yeah. that was it. I think yes. that's... that's I, I, I happen to yeah. arrive that September in London with Lloyd Curry and come to the launch party. Do you remember mm. that? Huh. Just yes. purely by yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh Well, one of the things I think... Yeah, I, and I took one look at that book and said, Jesus yeah. Christ, this yeah. is a good book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, the movie wasn't even that bad. No, it's, a, it's better now it's, than it's, it's than a it good appeared movie. at the time. It's a good yeah. movie. Yeah. But the thing, I remember reading that and uh, I mean, I was probably somebody who would have liked anybody uh, to write a mainstream novel. But I think a lot of my friends looked at that and it just fits right in with everything else. Yeah. It's like the first thing we said is that's where all those drained swimming pools came yeah. from. Yeah. Right. Right. Indeed, yeah. Right. Jonathan, how are we on time? Are we We are just about are getting just towards about the end of our period, our really. Period. I mean, I'm sure oh, you guys have other things to get to, but we are sort of <laughs> almost done. <laughs> I did actually want to ask something controversial. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we don't need controversy. I did want to ask you one thing, David, since you're there. How was it editing uh, the female man? Because I don't know that it's that widely known amongst the people no, I know, no, at least I, that I you did edited that not book. Edit the female man. You didn't? I edited Joanna after that. Oh, okay. Fair I right. edited We Who Are. I'm, I'm sorry. I edited uh, the two, the of, two them, of them. Two okay. Of them, which is uh, one of her best novels and one of her hardest to read. Uh, Did Fred Pohl edit The Female Man? Fred Pohl edited The Female Man, as he edited Dahlgren. Yeah. Uh, I knew about Dahlgren. I didn't know about The Female Man. I recall Joanna Russ was, as I say, staying in my apartment in New York Uh when she got the advance cover for The Female Man, which some of you will remember. Uh, It's a female figure with a skin... comic book uh, outfit exposing one breast, but the outfit also has a fully formed breast on it, uh, <laughs> oh, and, okay. as in a brass bra. Yeah. And Joanna came home in the evening from visiting Fred and said, David, look at my cover. It's got three tits. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I suppose they have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't complain. <laughs> Because she understood it as contemporary marketing. Uh, Because Joanna 
was one of those people who also like you know you don't care what's in the movie you still got the text yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. she cared about the text and uh, she was actually quite put out after the book came out when people thought when some people received it as very serious and angry she said it's supposed to be funny it's too. a very <laughs> funny book and I said I said I understand the last line is from Pogo. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, somebody else besides me is going to rue this here particular day. <laughs> you know? I mean, come on. <laughs> you know. Uh, anyway, uh, well, uh, editing, yeah. editing the two of them, in fact, was difficult and involved conversations like, Joan, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you have to do this? Mm -hmm. uh, and she would explain to me at some length that yes, she wanted to do this, and yes, she had to do this for these reasons. And I said, okay, all right, your book. Uh, and because I was disturbed by the manuscript myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I understood that the male character was actually a projection of Fritz Leiber, you know, and that, mm -hmm. uh, and she was going to, and she was murdering him. And she said, if I was going to do this, I was going to have to do this with the best man I had ever met. Uh, she worshipped Fritz. Well, yeah, and then yeah. she had the Fawford and the Grey Mouser in the Adventures of yeah, Alex, and right. he had Alex in one of the last Grey Mouser stories. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, she said if I was going to if I was going to have to kill yeah. a sympathetic male character, I was going to have to kill the best male character uh -huh. I ever met. Yeah. You know. Uh, okay. You a bit sad. So. I was, I was not as sad as being forced to integrate the information into my world system. <laughs> so editing you know. something like that actually changes your view of the world in a way. Yes. Right. I was going to say, you know. Reading the manuscript for Dahlgren and commenting, yes. it changes your view yeah. of the world. You know? When you edit a book, you have to get inside the author's head. Mm -hmm. So you get inside a lot of very different heads as an editor. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, I, it was my idea for Chip yeah. to do the motion of light and water. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I was the editor of that book. You know, uh, that, that was, you know, a head-changing book, too. Uh, one, one values that experience. Ed I think Gene Wolfe is yeah. not the easiest thing in the world. I imagine <laughs> not. I, yeah. We must have some mutual work. We, we both edited Keith Roberts. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. right. I've edited and Keith lived, Roberts. And lived to tell the tale. I was going to say, yeah. with at least my reputation yes. somewhat impaired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, um, I became the, the enemy. Ah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Everybody did. Yeah, well, you know, editors were his enemy, yeah. you know, uh, and you have to live with that. One of the things that happens in yeah. films, and it's it's only happened rarely in fiction, and that's when there's a powerful estate involved, is the director's cut. The, some of the director's cut of a Ridley Scott movie, for example. And I've seen a number of these, and almost always the original edit had a lot going for it that the director's cut doesn't. Yeah. And occasionally we've seen some restored texts of well-known science fiction writers. Heinlein is one. And sometimes when you look at something like that, you realize, okay, the role of the editor was really a good one in this case. Yeah. 
I haven't read The Uncut Stranger in a Strange Land, and I doubt I ever will. But I think I will because I want to read the early part about Mars. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about that. I haven't done it in 20 years, yeah, but I'm yeah. curious about it, and I think I'll get around to it. But the rest of the book, no. Uh, and I knew the editor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. And of course, now in the new self-publishing landscape, the role of editors is being widely derided. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it you know mm. it's, it's like the role of editors in multinational corporations is invisible, yeah. because and uh, you know a, a business manager in Germany cannot tell what an editor in the U.S. adds or doesn't add the text. Yeah, true. All they can right. tell is whether it worked or not. Yeah. yeah. And but obviously there's a, a large kind of a pool of writers and readers out there who think that the editors of, of, of the people who are stopping good stuff from seeing the light of day. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, those are the same people that think that critics are something fault finders. Yeah. You know, all we do is find bad things. Right. You know? Rather than praise yeah. good things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, there are a large number of people, a larger number of people who believe they're deserving yeah. one way or another than there are people who believe they are not more than yes. average deserving. Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, but occasionally you'll see a self-published writer, and I'm trying to remember her name, the one that was so famous a couple of years ago because she uh, had, had these you know, e-book bestsellers, and then decided she was going to go to a commercial publisher and hire an editor because she realized she needed an editor. Amanda Hawking. Amanda Hawking, yes. Right, yeah. And I thought, I don't know, I know nothing about Amanda yeah. Hawking except that there has to be some self-awareness there for yeah. her to know that she needed an editor. Yeah. Look, you remember, Steve King hired an editor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because Steve King knew damn well. Yes. Well, yeah. good good writers, in my experience, are always grateful for, for what an editor brings. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Because the editor is only trying to make the author's text as good as it can be. It's still the author's text, not the editor's. Right. Yes. right. Well, there are there are texts where I have changed in effect, one or two words and made an editorial uh, contribution. Yeah. And there are texts, mm. texts where I have, all, you know, in effect, altered it in a major way. Yeah. Uh, but they're still the author's text, yeah. not my text. Yeah. I'm not a co-editor, I'm yeah. not a co-writer. Co and if, if the author at the end disagree, at the end of that, what the author wants is what goes forward. Some, it's their yeah. book. Yes. Yes. Somebody was asking me earlier today, and I can't remember who it was, is there Gordon Lish in science fiction? And no, there is no one who drinks as much as Gordon Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what a diplomatic response. That's an example I'm slightly unfamiliar with. So. Uh, Gordon Lish was uh, a major fiction editor yeah. who created. Uh, he the career of Raymond Carver uh, by doing enormous cutting. The whole Raymond Carver style yeah. was was Gordon Lish pruning things down to a third or a fourth of the original. So he's the more, more, more Maxwell Perkins. Yes. 
going to say, yes. I think Maxwell Perkins meant must have been not as extreme as, as this. Oh, Mark, Maxwell Perkins cut tens of thousands of words out of Tom, Tom Wolfe. Wolf. Yes. But Tom Wolfe, <laughs> there's still hundreds of yeah. thousands of words left. What could possibly? <laughs> yes, nevertheless. <laughs> and there was a debate, there was a debate in the 40s whether, whether Maxwell Perkins killed Tom Wolfe. Um, right. So that, yeah. but th th that kind of thing is probably... But Perkins edited other major writers yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, a, you know, there were a number of great editors in that era. One of them was Clifton Fadiman, and when he was in his 90s, he edited my World Treasury of Science Fiction, and I was, I was flattered right. and educated by that experience. Mm. He was a very fine editor. Yes. So our message... And a bit of an SFB, because he... Yes. One of those, those FNSF ads. He was, he was in the FNSF yeah. ads. Yeah. I always wondered about those. Louis Armstrong was in yes. those. Well, he did Fantastica Mathematica. Fantasia yeah. Mathematica. Yeah. Yeah. Fantasia yeah. Mathematica, which was a lovely anthology in the 50s. And he gave some, he reviewed some science fiction books very favorably. I was, I was surprised when I went back and looked at some of the New York Times reviews in the early yeah. 50s. Science fiction was not consigned to track. It was the reviewers were people like yeah. uh, Basil Davenport and Anthony Boucher, and yeah, they were yeah. very sympathetic. Well, in the UK, there's people like Kingsley Amis, Edward Chris, mm -hmm. right. yeah. and Anthony yeah. Burgess. I wish we had that level of yeah. attention. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. You know, this, this, we have not increased yeah. the level of attention from the establishment figures from the 50s. Yeah, that's true. This is something that a lot of people are unaware of. Uh, but uh, I mean, John Ciardi and people like that were hanging out with science fiction people yeah. too. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in the 1960s, in that cultural ferment, it was quite cool to be an SF reader. Yeah, it seemed to be. Yeah, yeah. it seemed to be. There's a... even the Beatniks were yeah. science fiction. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, well, we gonna... I think I think we might be sort of reaching <laughs> the end of our time. We might sort of wind up and just sort of say thank you both for making the time i hope we'll get to see you in in brighton and of course malcolm next year in london as well for uh the, the world con where you're guest of honor indeed thank you i'm a guest of honor nevertheless congratulations that's wonderful right and jonathan i guess i'll talk to you again uh in a week or so Inevitably, as always, definitely. I'll that's, look forward to sounds, it. That sounds fatalistic. I mean, <laughs> inevitably. What is that? Yes. Unavoidable. Unavoidable, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Okay. Well, I look forward to it. I will talk to you then, and thank you again uh, very much. And until oh, then... Yes, you okay. 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 Yeah, you'll have well, fun here. You'll have fun here. See you okay. very soon. Okay. Look forward to it. Bye. 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 All right.